0: You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's
1: get ready to rumble. Wherever you are. However, you're listening. It's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Ashley Hardgrave, joined this week by the skeleton crew of Oliver Camacho and Matt <laughs> cummings and the lingering spirits of Weston Williams and George Sederquist. All right. In this episode, she was more than a diva, and tonight she enters the OBS Hall of Fame. It's our tribute to the late, great Renata Scotto. And then, in a blow to American opera cognoscente, the Metro the Metropolitan Opera Guild will cease publication of Opera News, which means that all UPR agents out there, we are all you've got left. Plus in the 2-minute drill, as we predicted, Spain won the World Cup, but Australian women can't get a break even in their own opera houses. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. You're going to click follow on Apple Podcasts. You're going to hit the plus sign. You can send a voice memo or you can email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll also get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. George will email those and mail those things right out to you.
2: If you could email uh, a lapel pin, that'd be awesome. We would get a lot more responses, I think. <laughs> you just need your own 3D printer. You can print your
1: own pin. We're in the same place. Oliver Camacho, how are you, babe?
2: Uh, So I've been really busy this weekend, but uh, it was the Cincinnati U.S., uh, the, the Cincinnati uh, tournament, uh, the Western Southern Tournament, whatever they call it. And uh, the top seeds, Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic, made it to the final. And it was such a dramatic match. Uh Novak Djokovic looked like he was getting heat stroke in the first set, and he lost. And I was like, oh, oh. Carlos is going to win. And then in the second set, first of all, there was weird things that happened in the break. Like, Novak Djokovic went to the bathroom for longer than he was supposed to, but Carlos <laughs> Alguaz did not complain about it. Uh He pulled out the second set. Like, I don't know how. He looked like he was about to collapse, but somehow he managed to get through and the third set was just a roller coaster, another long bathroom break between sets, like seven minutes, which is like illegal, I think. But um, Novak Djokovic came back 100% in the third set. And my stupid DVR, this is what I wanted to bring this up. So when I was recording this match, I knew I was going to be home to watch it. I asked the DVR to give me an hour and a half more than the, a lot of time. And that's the extent of what <gasps> it was able to give me. It couldn't give me 2 no. hours. And so I missed the last like 20 minutes of the match and like it goes oh. right to like end of file just as they're approaching the type the decisive tie break in the third set. So I had to like look at the internet to like actually find out the results, which is so unsatisfying. But uh Man. so This is an early bad call to Comcast (laughs) or Xfinity, (laughs) I guess.
1: (laughs) I mean, we used to have, you know, we got all excited about the pitch clock in baseball shortening the times of games. We need a P clock in tennis, apparently. Um, (laughs) Matthew Cummings, Mike Darling, how are you?
3: Oh, you know, I'm just hunkering down to get ready for the, uh, the sport of extreme heat avoidance in that that's coming to the Midwest this week.
1: Yeah, listeners, uh, there are going to be some oppressive temperatures here in the upper Midwest uh, in the the later parts of this week. So if you know people in the Chicago metro area, send them some cooling thoughts. Uh, One of the things that I want to just bring up is a big congratulations to Shikari Richardson. Uh, You may remember her from a couple of years ago. She missed the Tokyo Olympic Games after she tested positive for marijuana. Shocking at the Olympic trials. Not shocking because she's her, but it's just dumb that they knocked her out for that. But at any rate, uh, she is back in competition and she won the 100 meter gold medal at the worlds this weekend. In her words, I'm not back. I'm better. I could not agree more. Let's
0: talk some opera. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic yet humble salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly distinctively and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera
2: that right there is just about all you need to know about the great Renata Scotto. That was from a live performance uh, 1967 from the Metropolitan Opera. Um, I mean, here is an artist that really cannot, it, there's no more even chance of us in this business of having a singer like Renata Scotto. And uh, I'm going to leave it to Matt to give us some history, but I am just going to say my quick, take that you know this was she's a singer from the time when you sang you you added one new role to your repertoire maybe every couple of years and you sang you know three or four roles very well and you sang them all over the world and you decided on your phrasing early on and you sang the same phrases every time you sang this role your interpretation deepened for sure your technical ability deepened for sure, but what you were basically trying to get at uh, is documented in so many of these live recordings, pirated and otherwise, and studio recordings. And you can really follow Renata Scotto and how she just negotiated in every performance. And her interpretations were so singular and so just deliberate. Like she had phrases in mind. And she went for them and it was exciting. And there are so many recordings where it's like, that was not great, but I know what you were trying to do and God bless you for trying to do it. Um, So <laughs> that's what I think about Renata Scotto. I've had my own encounter with her when I was still in school and maybe I'll tell that story uh, later on. But uh let's rewind it back because this is a singer who really had three careers, uh one as a bel canto singer, then one... Uh, jumping into varis- varistic repertoire and then finally at the end uh, as a stage director
0: um, mm. but
2: matt uh, i passed the uh the what is it the in the relay races are they batons that they the pass baton. the scotan yeah. the scotan the, the scot-on.
1: <laughs> <Yes. laughs> there it is
3: Renata Scotto was born in 1934, which is a year that will strike all of you as being in between the two world wars in Italy. Um, and that is actually a pretty by, bi- a pretty important biographical point from her uh, about her life. It comes up a lot in profiles of her that she was the daughter of a seamstress. They grew up very, very, very poor. And singing was a means to escape the, that, uh, oppressive poverty. Uh, and it, I, I think it added a, like a little, it seemed to have added a little bit extra of how much she relished the diva lifestyle that she was able to put on as another character. It never really, it, she, as, as much as, as possible, the, the singer Renata Scotto and the person Renata Scotto always seemed to remain kind of separate. You know, she talked later in her life about how she never really sang at home, not even in the shower. She had very few pieces of performance memorabilia around her house. Uh, but it was such an indelible part of her life, uh, going, and she, she made her her professional opera debut all the way back in 1952 in the role of Violetta at the Teatro Nuovo, and the next year appeared in La Valle in a supporting role at La Scala with, uh, you know, Renata Tibaldi and Mario Monaco. So a real slow start for, for La Piccolo Renata, as she is called. <laughs> uh, and um, she... So, she got a foothold in the Italian opera scene to appearing largely in soubrette roles until 1957. And at that point she becomes an ensemble member at La Scala and is responsible for a lot of these Belcanto, Ina and Etta roles, you know, Adina, Norina. Uh, and, and that's really where we, as the opera living audience get our first taste of um what it is that she specifically brings to the table.
2: So that is from the 1967 film of Elixir of Love, which stars Renata Scotto as Adina and, uh, Carlo Bergonzi as, uh, what's his name? <laughs> Nemorino. Um, yeah. And it's been a long this, week, friends. This video, which we, maybe I'll have George put a clip in it, a clip up, uh, a link in our show notes. This video to me is a masterclass in how to sing Bel Canto. Um, as I said at the top, like she has these ideas about phrases and she goes for them. And depending on what day and how she's feeling, you can get, you know, a fermata that lasts 10 seconds or 20 seconds or 30 seconds. <laughs> like it's how she's feeling on that day. And it felt like on this day that she recorded this, she was an excellent voice. And I will slip in my little story right here. About Scotto, she gave a master class at Northwestern back when I was still in school and, uh, a singer was doing Caro and, uh, the singer was just not giving enough acting and Renato was just like really like trying to encourage her to just be more, be more. And she eventually said something along the lines of, when you have text, you are Gilda, but when you have a vowel and you are singing a, cad- a, cad- a cadenza, you are You, so you are Renato Squato in this moment. So forget about staying in character in this moment. This is, you giving your voice to the audience and now that i know that about the way she sings that's if you watch her videos she's doing that you know she just stops yeah. time and just becomes a diva in that moment
1: and i think one of the other things just you know i know it's uh you know you're you're listening to us on an audio platform and and opera definitely starts with sounds but again you've got to think about the visual this was not a a a large presence physically on the stage. She was barely five feet tall. So when you think about the optics of having this tiny, tiny package putting out this incredibly beautiful sound, especially the bigger sounds when she gets into the bigger roles, it's just, it's so, it's so striking that she had so much power in that tiny little body.
3: And the power very much comes from that command over the moment where she is not going to move on before she feels like she wants to. Her t- phrasing is so individualistic, it's so intentional. And by, And because she's doing that, like, with a really keen ear for how the music should go, for what the character is trying to say, it never really rings as false. Like, it always rings as just being expressive, uh, in a way that's really special and in a way that doesn't always come through in Belcanto music. Like, I am an absolute sucker for Belcanto music, but it can easily turn indulgent. And even, especially when you're making those kinds of, um, individualistic choices to, you know, different—not not just to differentiate differentiate yourself from the other singers uh, in the repertoire, but to you know, give the audience something new, give the audience something fresh. And it never feels like she's sacrificing the music to do that. It always feels like she's enhancing it. That is the magic of Renata
2: Scotto. <laughs> <laughs> but she may be sacrificing her own vocal health, and that's something she we could talk about be, by, later on, and, and, and
3: especially later in her career, yeah, if she but, would be willing oh. to
2: even early in her career um she has this uh edge to the voice uh some people call it as uh, metallic um i just feel like it's part of like just the core of her sound and she's able to take the warmth out of it and she wields her voice like a blade and she has this thing where she just like she knows how to like spread the vowel like put it in the mask and just like start the tone and like cut and then begin to build the volume the crescendo and the crescendo doesn't get warm it just gets edgier and brassier. And it's like, oh, it <laughs> feels like, feels like, like she's good. shoving a sword into your ear. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Right. Go on, Matt. I'm sorry. We're, I derailed you. And that even comes sometimes when she's singing these uh, super sobriety
3: roles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for example, the performance where she really, you know, takes off on the inter- onto the international stage, despite uh, having had a decent amount of success in the previous years, comes in. Uh, around the same time, around 1957, where she is the understudy to one Maria Callas in the La Scala Festival in Edinburgh's production of Sonambula. And there were supposed to be four performances of this Sonombula run. And there are versions differ, there's a lot of gossip, there are a lot of rumors, but Everyone agrees that a fifth performance was added, and Maria Callas could not do it. Some say she was sick, and her doctor wouldn't let her. Some say she had to leave to go to a party. There are probably other versions that are floating out there, too, wherever Maria Callas goes in opera history, many, many rumors and uh vituperative asides follow. But <laughs> the fact of the matter is, Renato Scotto jumped in for that uh, uh for that final performance and this is at age 23 and she became another star of this nascent bel canto revival uh she and this gave her the ability to choose her roles and shape her career in, that she didn't previously have it also did earn her the ire of many of the most devoted callas fans uh and oh. she would continue to be heckled at, at some major um crossroads in her career by people uh who were carrying this torch about a fight between two divas who uh actually by all reports got along quite well. But the role of Sonambula is such an interesting one to think of Scotto as be if you're really only familiar with her later career stuff because you don't think of her as a florid singer. But it it would be f- false to say that she did not have the chops. Uh let's hear a clip of her uh doing the end of the cabaletta Anonjunge to the the sleepwalking scene of Sonambula uh which is not from that that 57 performance, but from a production just a couple years later. Is like definitely a tone that is plenty beautiful. It, it maybe doesn't have the same kind of roundness and evenness as like a Joan Sutherland would, um, it, but it, it it's much more in the vein of Callis in terms of how much she's willing to just go for it and be a true singing actress uh, and, and t- making these really daring choices about dynamics and tempo and the Oliver. I I hadn't heard the story about her making it, uh, um. Making a cadenza, Renato Scotto's point of view, when I was prepping for this segment, but that is absolutely what she is doing at that cadenza so at the sense. very end there. It just, she just stretches it out forever and forever and forever. And by the time she finally gets to an authentic cadence you are just <laughs> begging for her to like give you that release. <laughs> by and so by the mid 60s Scotto was already making a name for herself uh not just as this light lyric bel canto singer but also as a puccini singer. Uh Bohem and Butterfly in particular were mainstays of her repertoire from from the early 60s. And people have I mean people have written and and debated and spoken a lot about how she was able to do this as someone with um, a not small, but definitely slim in some ways instrument. Uh, and how, and what, what I really think is that she had such a good sense of line and such a good sense of legato that even though her voice wasn't able to necessarily swell in the, in, in that kind of all enveloping encompassing way that you would get from like a true dramatic or spinto soprano, she's able to bring the music to life and able to fill out those lines um, pure, re, really by keeping the, like, the direction of her singing alive. Uh, and at least at first, it, it did not overtax her instrument. Like, she sang Butterfly for 25 years. It was a role that would, that, that she had a very close association with. It, it was the role in which she made both her Met debut and her Met farewell, uh, and she recorded two different studio sets, one with Bergonzi and Sir John Barbaroli in 1966, which is excellent, uh, and another with Placido Domingo and Lauren Mazel in
2: 1978, which also exists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, si- sidebar, um, the first studio butterfly um, her singing is so good on this recording it's so i mean for her she never really sounded like fresh she's not like a fresh sounding singer but she sounds so youthful and she's able to access all of her most famous tricks um in this recording but this comes from an era when the producer producers had so much to do with the sound of a recording. And you could really hear the hand of whoever it was, Walter Legge, I don't know who it was, that that engineered this recording or that produced the recording, creating like a sound world for this recording. And it's yeah. so, whatever, 60s or 70s. It feels very old-fashioned, that everything is just warm and there's no hard edges and the volume of everything is all balanced out. And it really doesn't give you... A true understanding of Scotto's ability to use her voice like a blade and cut through, which is why I recommend listen to the, to the Barbaroli recording. Cause it's beautiful, but then listen to that live one from the Met. So you just understand what she was doing and how much dynamic variety she brings to the hip. That's one of her biggest tricks is just being able to bring it really, really soft. Uh, and then make it so edgy that you like like you said you wanted to just okay stop okay we got it we got it you know let's actually listen to a clip there that comes from uh the end of the big act 1 love duet
3: Volyatemi beni uh on that Barbaroli set just to hear how delicate and gossamer she's able to get some of those floated lines uh and, and knowing that the that she would She was fully willing to run to the opposite end of the spectrum, both in terms of like beauty of tone and dynamics in order to get her point across. From the sixties into the seventies, uh, the, the Metropolitan Opera becomes a really big player in her career. It, it already had made a few appearances. Her, her, her debut was in around 1965, but Rudolf Bing was known for wanting to keep singers in as little boxes as possible. And Ronaldo Scotto was definitely not the first singer to run into issues with, uh, with that tendency of his, that, uh, he was quite autocratic. Um, and she left. She said she wouldn't take those contracts if he was only going to offer her Mimi and Boa and Butterfly and Lucia and things that she didn't really want to sing anymore. Good for her. And in the seventies, when it was, when the housepeak took, came under new artistic leadership, including, um, one conductor who had a very close relationship with, um, with, with, Scotto, uh, a close artistic relationship with Scotto. And we don't really talk about him anymore. Uh, but he did. As a result of this partnership, we do have a lot of really wonderful television broadcasts, because she was chosen to star on on the first few Live from the Met telecasts from 1977. Uh, The original was a La Boheme with Pavarotti, and she would go on to star in also a a Luisa Miller, a Don Carlo, uh, the Riccardo Zandanae Francesca da Rimini, an opera that... It was a real passion project of hers, um, and, and shows just how much she wanted to push her repertoire beyond the, um, the box of that bel canto into real, true verismo rarities. Uh, there, there was also a production of Otello, but the the vocal demands of those roles, as I'm naming them off, if you like, if you can. Are familiar with them are really different than anything any clips of hers that we've played on this podcast so far they are much more in the middle voice they are much more declamatory there is a lot more competition with the orchestra and uh just a demand for quite a lot of oomph in your sound but there is a, com- but there's a common thread of like, these are characters who are interesting to her. These are operas that she wanted to bring to life. These are pieces where she felt she had something to say. And she wanted to deploy her voice how she could to, to bring the music to life.
2: I'll just say, as we're taking this moment right here, that, um, you know, as her voice starts to be de- de- demands on her voice are for more declamatory, varistic singing. Um, you know, the technique didn't always hold up and there are um recordings of her uh especially the pirated ones where you hear that she sacrifices um pitch uh or she if she's doing like a a little melismatic jag she'll slide over some stuff or maybe she'll come off a high note um you know uh, a little bit early or with a bad release you know And she said, you know, I prefer to have one unbeautiful note in my voice than perfection. That doesn't mean anything.
1: Yeah, I'll buy that.
3: And the driving force between all of that was just devotion to the text and the character and trying to bring out its inner meeting with her delivery. Uh, and that wide variety of tone qualities, that seemingly improvised phrasing, uh, the conviction with which she inhabited a role and like worked to project that character psyche, uh, got summed up really nicely in a quote by, uh, the writer Peter Davis in New York magazine, where he said time and time again, Scotto reminded us of her sovereign musicality, her instinctive feeling for the rhythmic life of the notes, her ability to mold finely sculpted phrases and her sensitivity for coloring the words into emotions that instantly define a dramatic situation. Uh, And I think that that really speaks to the challenge that she found in Verismo music, that it, it's not quite so formalized. It, you know, is a lot more free flowing and it, Even It encourages the singer to take that kind of ownership and to um, really, not necessarily fight with the conductor, but be fully prepared to say, like, no, I'm in charge here. This is, you know, this is my show. uh, And I want, and I think that this is how this moment should feel. And she she really sought to change the perception of Verismo as not caring about the voice. She talks about how shrieks and growls and lazy portamenti are what everyone thinks of when they're when they're talking about that kind of late Italian music. But that she should never force the voice, and it was her intention to let that bel canto technique lead into the more dramatic repertoire. And it's not with no like she did find a lot of success in uh in that kind of electric singing. I I want to uh, pull in a clip here from her studio set of uh Andrea Chenier where her, of her singing La Mamma Morta and that kind of those you know undulating phrases that just build and build toward the the big climactic high notes it, live is a, a a much different set of challenges uh but it is definitely not as though she didn't have the chops and I think that sometimes the 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 focus on be, because she was willing to to bring in imperfections there is a misconception that she actually wasn't as good of a singer as she was <laughs> While bringing a lot of drama to life on stage, she was no stranger to it off stage. I, I mentioned a little <laughs> bit earlier that there was kind of an ongoing feud between the Scotto fans and the Callas fans, including at one point when she was doing "Ivespri Ciliani," that uh, they 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 boo her and call for Callas on stage, and she says, "Well, then go get Maria Callas if she can still sing this." <laughs> And, and there's oh, a rather, <laughs> there's a rather infamous incident of her feuding with Pavarotti at, at San Francisco Opera where uh, they were putting on La Gioconda and she was supposed to have the final bow and she's the title character. And he is on, he's on camera because they're also making a documentary about this production. So he's like, he, they, they film him kind of like sneaking around her to go back out for one more curtain call, like, Oh, aren't I a bad boy? And she, is caught like swearing at him in Italian, uh, and, and really trying to indict the whole San Francisco opera organization for letting him get away with it because he was a star and she was like, what, just there, chopped liver. But I, and I think it is. So interesting to look back at these stories, which are, like, in terms of diva antics, relatively tame, but also to to see that they were, you know, definitely played up for drama in the time. But really, this is a woman who knew what she wanted and wasn't going to let herself get bossed around uh, and would clap back when she thought that people were mistreating her. And... Uh, Just like that, in her career, too, she had no interest in letting people tell her what to be. Uh, And as she stopped wanting to sing quite so much, she took on a third career as a director and a teacher uh, to to work in the whole art form instead of just as a singer. And many of the singers that she worked with as a director have spoken about how nurturing she was, about how much she didn't just try to create copycat performances of her, you know, another Renato Scotto Tosca, but like she guided the singers she was working with to their own interpretations, and that mentorship is so instrumental to many of the the singers in the current generation of, of singers.
2: So many of the singers in my social media circle, you know, they just wrote the most generous things about Renata Scotto, and you know, how great of a mentor she was, and how generous she always was. And yeah, I mean, there's this book, uh, More Than a Diva, which is her autobiography, which I think, if you want the hot goss, you know, you can read that. But uh, yeah, just like, ask somebody who knew her or ask somebody who like studied with her or whatnot. And you will hear that she was actually just in service of this art. She was a true, true vessel for opera.
3: And I think that we should let her take us home uh, with one of the most affecting clips of her that I found during all of my research for this performance, which is the closing of senza Mamma" from Swar Angelica. It's just heartbreaking what she's able to do uh, with all of these moments, both big and intimate. <laughs>
0: Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score.
2: So, for those of you who listened to last week's episode, you heard Weston come on and give a uh, a, bonus, a postscript um, at the front <laughs> of the show. Uh, as our show was released on Thursday, all of this terrible news uh, from the opera world came down mostly on Tuesday. Uh, and one of those things that we learned uh, last week was that the Metropolitan Opera Guild is going to shrink and what of one of its cost cutting measures is to axe opera news
1: among other things uh, RIP man it was it was a rough week last week so the uh- the reporting is that the Guild as we know it is dissolving, is disbanding this fall. Um, And so just to kind of give you some some information on this, if you're not as familiar. So the Guild is an independent nonprofit that's been running for like over 80 years. And its mission was to support the Metropolitan Opera. It helped publish opera news. So what's happening is... That will cease operations in the fall. The opera news portion is going to be absorbed basically as an American news section uh, for British opera magazine. Uh, The Guild itself will no longer be an independent nonprofit, but it's going to operate within the Metropolitan Opera structure. The employees of the Guild itself are going to be severed. The board members of the Guild are going to be offered roles in the Mets board. Uh, One of the other things that the Guild did was it supported a lot of educational and outreach programs, and the Met says it's going to continue some of those guild initiatives, including those education pro- uh, programs. The challenge for me is w- with what money. You know, I see the education programs and the school outreach as kind of the overlooked shrapnel of this of this closure. Things like Urban Voices, Learning Institute, Teaching Through Opera. I mean, are they going to have a home are are they going to in a couple of months after people have gotten used to the news that the guild is is dissolving? Is this g- going to just be another news item that we're going to cover here? So it's, you know, kind of a bummer, kind of a bummer. And and these are some things to just sort of note and think about as we as we go through what this dis- dissolvement means and sort of what it means sort of for the greater uh, community of ours here in the American opera scene. You know, some people – I'm not the only one that's heard it called Opera News. I know I'm not. Uh, and some people definitely <laughs> thought of it as, as a fluff piece. But it was the only American publication that was truly dedicated to the art form of American opera. So as of this fall, there's going to be this enormous vacancy. There will be no national coverage within our community except – you know, whatever may or may not happen in the New York Times, which doesn't really focus on Americans, it's not their bag, you know, and there's nothing also for the external global community to sort of look in and see like, well, what's going on in American opera, all we're going to have is this little section on an English website and publication, it's like we're reversely being colonized. You know, there's a lot of podcasts, absolutely, there's definitely one with some really witty hosts that I think is pretty good. But there's not really going to be this centralized news reporting source, everything is sort of fractioned. It reminded me a little bit of how, you know, sort of in the 70s, 80s, 90s, there were the big three uh news networks, sort of ABC, NBC, CBS. And that was where everybody went to get the news of the day. And then with the rise of cable, and the fractioning of news in the 90s, we started to see sort of a a, a, a more people retreated to their corners, basically, as it were. So that was one of the first like, parallels that I saw. I don't know if that's the way we're going to go, but we'll see. For me, it was, you know, and and for I think a lot of us, it was sort of this receptacle for this artist elevation. You know, if you were a music student or a music fan who didn't live in a metro area, didn't have access to actually see these live performances, maybe you, I don't know, like me, grew up in a rural or remote area This publication, this glossy magazine that would show up once a month, regardless of what the content was inside, it was the way for you to feel connected to that community and to have some sort of finger on the pulse. And in talking through this, uh, Weston put together a pretty great point that I want to make sure that we bring into this conversation before, before I kick it to my colleagues over here. And, you know, opera news and the, you know, the, the opera media in terms of radio, like despite their small audiences, Weston says they often fail to acknowledge their ability to guide tastes and artistic movements, thinking it's their job instead to reflect the taste back onto the viewers and the listeners. So for him, that's why the loss of this periodical is so incredibly significant. We just lost the most significant established media center for change in American opera, whether they realized it or not. You know, the the idea of changing with the times is something we've talked a whole lot about on this show. Uh, and unfortunately, I think that is going to also ring true here. We should have seen a bunch of opera news podcasts and think pieces and multimedia extensions a very long time ago. Uh, but again, this was really sort of that central hub for all things American opera. Um, Alan Held is a gentleman who put together some really poignant thoughts there on Facebook. Uh, and if you are connected to anybody in the opera world, there's a really good chance that you're going to be able to get yourself connected to and read this update from Alan Held that was he put this up uh, about five days ago. So right sort of as the news came out. Um I've also seen a couple of takes about, you know, funding and and who's who's to blame for the for the reduction in funding. I mean, they've they lost what, four or five million dollars of their budget between 2019 and now. So yeah, there's there's definitely a loss of funding there. Who's to blame for it? Some people say things like the NEA. Um, I'm gonna have to push back on that. You know, the blaming the NEA doesn't work. Why? Because Congress funds that. Uh, they had $228 million this year. Most of that is for their grant programs and specific awards or the direct state partnerships. So was the guild not writing enough grants? Maybe, but you can't really blame the NEA if they didn't ask for the money. Um, So again, I just I, I I lament and I mourn this, this loss as as fluffy as some people may have thought that publication was, you know, was it hard hitting journalism, maybe not necessarily all the time. But what it represented was the thing that I'm really mourning the most, uh, where, where are you guys? Where's your head at on this?
3: I would say even more than that, what like well, the the sense of this being a canary in a coal mine that there are multiple other shoes to drop, and just the the continued uncertainty of funding that that something of this you know level of esteem and prestige could seemingly dry up without anyone realizing that it was tro- truly at risk um, is is concerning.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, you already stated most of my points, uh, one, that this is a platform for uh what's happening in the U.S. and opera. And it was read by, you know, audiences and opera professionals, um, especially in its heyday. It's, let's say, like the whatever 70s through the early aughts. And then maybe it became, you know, as people move away from physical media, uh, it became less important to own opera news. But, you know, the... Uh, the journalism within the stories, the profiles, um, the poll quotes, and the reviews are still things that PR people need in order to, yeah. you know, build their press kits and to, uh, you know, have fun things to put on their headshots <laughs> when they're sharing their season announcements, you know. Um, to yeah, write the- great obituaries that we pull from for these Hall of Fame episodes. <laughs> exactly. 100%. Uh, And, yeah, and the coverage of the regional companies, like what, you know, an honor it was if you are like a small company in, let's yeah. say, Chicago, a storefront company, and you got reviewed in Opera News because you did something interesting. That is a way to just elevate your work and just to get on the board, like just to get on the map like we did it and it was an Opera News because unless somebody covers you, you know, Nobody knows you did anything, <laughs> anywhere, you know. You need somebody to say you did it, and for there to be pictures, pics, or it didn't happen, you know. <laughs> and um, also, there were reviews of recordings, you know, and yeah, um, I, I mean, I mean, I'm older than both of you, and I loved reading those reviews, and it made me decide, okay, I'm going to buy that one, you know. And so when, back when recordings mattered, and like, you know, sales of recordings mattered, they had an influence on, uh, you know, uh, singers getting their recordings purchased and making topping the charts and becoming Grammy winners. Like it all, you know, fed into this business, whether or not it was fair, whether or not it was too centralized on New York, whether or not it was, you know, um, uh, a shill for, um, metropolitan opera artists. And, you know, if we make fun of this uh, opera news awards that They do, it's like, oh, they want to promote somebody. So they'll honor like somebody old, like George Shirley, and somebody who is like retiring, like Credit von Stada, and let's promote Lisa Davidson, you know? Uh, and you give out three awards, you know, and it's a way for them to really just say, Hey, we got Lisa Davidson here now, you know? Fine, you know, but at least they were still honoring these people and reminding whoever audiences are reading this thing, whether they're the old-fashioned audience or people just discovering the art a person named Renata Scotto used to sing here a lot and we want to make sure you remember her by honoring her with the Opera News award. So, anyway, it's very it's it's devastating, it's very sad. Canary in the Coal Mine, all those things. Um I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I mean, I have friends who are in PR. I was in PR for a minute there, Opera PR. And uh, yeah, Opera News was a big get uh if you could get your artist covered in that and uh, what are we going to do now? You know, what are those people going to do now? What were they? Where are they going to get their stories? You know, in the New York Times. You know, in the Chicago Tribune.
3: Another publication that's been decimated by consolidation yeah. and and private equity. Like this is not just an Opera News problem. Like this is a a journalism and media problem that is like metastasizing in every single arena at the same time, seemingly.
1: Yeah, I mean, it goes back to to Weston's point a bit ago about, you know, sort of the steering of the ship, you know, where are people going to go for sort of the tastemakers, the change makers, that sort of stuff. I will say that there have been some, I, I was going to try to go back to the coal mine reference, but I don't think I am. There's there've been these little bright spots, these little glimmers of hope in in the form of sort of. Independent enthusiasm when it comes to this. Now, are these people going to be able to become the new central change maker, tastemaker? Who can say? But considering that we've really been having this adapt or tie or a die, excuse me, get with the changes conversation, you know, is there somebody who's going to see this vacancy and try to assemble something that can be a replacement? It's probably not going to be the same in terms of having like a hard copy publication because those aren't much of a thing anymore. I lament that I still have copies of opera news from 20 years ago. Uh, but there are ways to modernize and have this be sort of a central hub and repository. I certainly don't have the time to do that. But I really hope somebody out there loves this art form enough to pick up that mantle and, and do that. Oliver, you seem to have a ton of time. Why don't why don't you do it? <laughs> and while we lament this we will go ahead and give you some other really fun information in the two-minute drill coming up next
0: this just in the two-minute drill.
1: All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what else happened in Operaland this week.
2: David B. Devan, executive director of Opera Philadelphia since 2011, has announced his plan to leave the company at the end of the upcoming season. The company, and in full disclosure, friend of the show, has run up to uh, has run up to $800,000 deficits in the past two years forcing them to postpone performances of Joseph Boulogne's The Anonymous Lover by one season, cutting their annual budget by 13%, eliminating five staff positions, and discontinuing their streaming platform, the Opera Philadelphia Channel.
1: In a week where everything else in the world of opera fell apart, on August 14th, approximately 10 blocks of historical buildings in the central historical area of Odessa and 30 cultural heritage monuments were damaged as a result of a night attack by Russia. In particular, the production buildings of the Odessa National Academic Opera and Ballet Theater were targeted.
3: Anna Netrebko's upcoming concert in Prague has been canceled due to the unequivocal opposition of her to her appearance by the government of the Czech capital during the Russian war in Ukraine. We read every day about the victims of the Russian attacks in the media, said Mayor Virgiy Pospisil. It is insensitive for such a singer to perform here in Prague. Natravko's representatives confirmed that they and she have agreed not to demand compensation for the cancelled event.
1: Opera America's 2023 Hall of Fame inductees include Cheryl Milnes, Frederico von Stada, and Anthony Davis, composer of the Central Park Five and X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. Other inductees include Michael Bronson, longtime producer of the Life from the Met TV series, Wayne S. Brown, CEO of Detroit, Susan Fetter of Shermer and the Mellon Foundation, and Freda B. Lindemann, President Emerita of the Metropolitan Opera Association. The inductees will be honored at a private event next year.
2: Musicians in the Philadelphia Orchestra have authorized a strike with 95% of participating musicians voting in favor if ongoing negotiations with management are unsuccessful. Musicians are seeking competitive pay, including for freelance contractors, improved benefits, and the filling of 15 vacant positions in the orchestra.
3: Rolando Villazon has received a Maryland Distinguished Alumni Award, where he is currently serving as an artist in residence. Rolando was not only a superlative artist, he is also a brilliant mentor. We are thrilled to have him here this summer to share his expertise with the Marilini, said executive director Gene Kellogg.
1: Stage director Lorenzo Ponte and his team, set designer Alice Benazzi and costume designer Giulia Rossena, have won the European Opera Directing Prize from Camerata Nuova Wiesbaden for their production of Smetna's Two Widows. Their concept will be performed at the Smetna Festival, Birmingham Opera, and Lviv National Opera in coming seasons.
2: Crunching the numbers, a study of Australia Australian opera productions across the country's five largest companies from 2005 to 2020 found that women held just 5% of conductor credits and less than a quarter of director credits. The study concluded that women were less likely to work on multiple productions compared to their male counterparts and saw low representation as set and lighting designers, reaching parity only as costume designers and Losing to England in the World Cup.
3: In trade news, Gretchen Van Valen will serve as Opera Ithaca's first managing director, drawing on her thirty years of experience in non profit work and fundraising.
1: Music Academy of the West has announced that Shauna Quill will be its new president and CEO. She succeeds Scott Reed, who's stepping down after 12 years. Quill is currently executive director of the New York Youth Symphony, who won a Grammy during her tenure for Best Orchestral Performance for the Youth Symphony's first professional recording.
2: On the disabled list, conductor Francesco Lancilotta has withdrawn from the Rossini Opera Festival's production of Adelaide de Borgogna following a road accident. The performances were conducted by Enrico Lombardi in his stead. Exit stage right, Japanese conductor Taijiro Iimuri has died at age 82.
3: A student of Seiji Ozawa Iimuri held numerous positions at Japanese orchestras and served as a music assistant at Bayreuth for over 20 years.
1: Italian baritone Alberto Rinaldi has died at the age of 84. Rinaldi made his operatic debut in Spoleto as Simone Boccanegra and went on to sing the Italian repertoire at major houses in Italy and across Europe.
3: Swedish conductor Arnold Özt Ustmann has died at age 83. Erstmann rose to prominence as a continual player and researcher of early opera and eventually became artistic director of Drondningholm Palace Theatre, where his productions, particularly those of Mozart operas, drew him international acclaim.
2: And on this day, August 21st, first performances include Antonio Salieri's Il Talismano in Milan in 1779, Adolphe Adam's Three Days in One Hour in Paris in 1830, Gaetano Donizetti's Betley La Capanna Svizzera in Naples in 1836. Birthdays include Otto Goldschmidt born on August 21st in 1829. French composer Lily Boulanger born in Paris in 1893. American soprano Quina Mario born in Akron, Ohio. She taught at the Curtis Institute and also the Juilliard School of Music and wrote mystery novels. She was born in 1896. And happy birthday to, representing England in our World Cup bracket, mezzo-soprano Dame Janet Baker, born this day, August 21st in 1933.
1: And that's your two-minute drill.
3: That was the esteemed Dame Janet Baker performing Dido's Lament with uh, Charles McHarris conducting the orchestra from Gleinborn in 1966, Uh, a very uh, unlike-you-would-hear-today production of Dido and Aeneas, but she really is bringing the drama and the... uh, just the I, I highly recommend that you go on YouTube and find this whole clip because how daring her phrasing is with those teeny tiny quiet plaintive remember me's is uh pretty
2: striking. So uh we have to you know full disclosure Opera Philadelphia is a very good friend of the show. Uh, I expect to attend the Opera Festio Festival uh next month, and uh, Frank Lucy has been our guest on Opera Box Score as well as many. Artists who have starred in productions at Opera Philadelphia. So, this news is especially troubling for us. Uh, We don't ever want to see companies falter. Uh, Hopefully, this restructuring, this tightening of the budget will help them uh, regain their footing. Too bad about the Bologna Opera, which will be postponed till next year. Of course, it's got to be the Opera by a Black Guy that goes into the uh, to be done later category but uh we <laughs> 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 uh and that's actually the smallest opera i mean it's like there's only well it's a chamber opera i mean i guess i don't know what the production was going to look like but uh it's not like you need to like do a big search for people who can sing that it's not like you're doing a lecture or something like that so yeah it's all disappointing news and um we wish david devan lots of luck on his next endeavor and
1: we high five Prague for making what we feel is probably a decent decision.
3: Yeah, um, I'm uh, the only thing I'm surprised about is that it was unanimous, or at least that's how this article is made to, to present it that no one in government <laughs> wanted her there.
1: You know, and I love that they include, oh, well, you know, she and her management decided that they wouldn't try to press for wages because, you know, she might be busy with a whole lawsuit across the pond. Yeah, she's uh, got but-
2: other lawsuit f- irons in the fire.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if she's got any check lawyers, but she has, they would she has be- plenty
2: of passive income with her lawsuit. So she's <laughs> sure canceled that I- contract.
1: I was gonna try to make a pun about checks and getting a check, but I couldn't work it out quick enough. Okay. I just, I, I don't have it in me today, folks. I'm so sorry. Uh But another thing we don't have enough of right now is apparently women in Australian opera productions. They're getting marginalized. In other news: well, this water's is, wet and the sky's blue.
3: It's pre-pandemic,
2: Ashley. I'm sure these numbers have turned around completely ever since they came back <laughs> online
0: in 2021.
2: <laughs> Cannot wait for the 2021 to 2035 study that'll come out. We'll be, we'll here we. Hear here to cover it right here on opera box score
1: that'll learn them guys it's been a really rough rough week in the world of opera we're just really glad you guys were here with us even though not a lot of news was great let's wrap this show up
0: good call bad call on opera box score
1: good call bad call this week is Pretty much all bad calls this week. Jesus, are there any? Uh, are there any glittering moments for either of you, Oliver Camacho?
2: Well, in preparing for this episode, I well, at preparing for reacting to Renata Scotto's passing, I just listened to all the Renata Scotto content, and I stumbled across an album on Apple Music that I thought I was the only person that had, and I didn't even have the full thing. It's a recital that she gave in Moscow. Uh, it's been released, uh, and Apple Music has the whole recital. I think it's from. 1960 something, um, with piano uh, from from Moscow. I should be more specific, but it's called Renata Scotto in Moscow with pianist Antonio Tonini, and she sings Juliet's uh, aria from Capoletti Montecchi. She sings the sleepwalking scene from Sonambula. She sings Prendi. She sings Violetta's two big arias. She sings Caro Nome. She sings Don and uh, Un Bel and she closes with a couple of songs, Avuckella and La Danza and then does an encore uh, of Omel Babino Caro. She sounds amazing in this uh, performance uh, and she does everything uh, good on this day. So if you are learning about Renata Scotto, and want to see what she sounded like when she was in fabulous voice, I recommend Renata Scotto in Moscow.
1: Matt Cummings.
2: I'll piggyback onto that with my own recommendation of one of the best
3: encapsulations. If you can only listen to one album by Renata Scotto, that show really everything she she can do. And there is a really wonderful um, Italian opera arias. Is the title of this of this disc that she recorded with John uh, Andrea Gavazzini That has a about. It's like. 18, I'm checking on Spotify right now, 18 different tracks from various Puccini and Verismo operas. Uh, the the highlights for me uh, would be the selections from the Wolf Ferrari Il Segreto di Susanna, uh, which uh, is, is a piece that you really don't get to hear very much otherwise. But if you are a newbie to, to her art and we have made you interested to hear more, this is a great place to start.
1: And I will not be on the Skoto train, but what I will tell you is that if you watch the latest installment of PBS Great Performances that happens to be coming out tonight, you're going to see the Chicago Symphony Orchestra with Maren Alstop doing uh, Leonard Bernstein's Kaddish Symphony, and you're going to see a very skeptical-looking soprano somewhere in the front row, and it might look like one of your Opera Box score hosts. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to our show, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at score at gmail.com. Find links to all of the stuff we've talked about on our website, which is, guess what, operaboxscore.com. That is also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho and your audio editor is Weston Williams. For co-host Matt Cummings, I'm Ashley Hargrave asking you to to continue the conversation about opera as you let your understudy go on so you can attend a party we're back with an all-new show next week plus you'll get more opera headlines more hot takes and no more bad news right join us